This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Cafe Connect, where we bring you the latest research from the University of Aberdeen. My name is Barbara Gorgoni and I'm part of the Public Engagement with Research Unit at the University. In this series, we meet different researchers who will talk about their work and their relevance to our everyday life. If you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Please email peru at abdn.ac.uk. That's P-E-R-U at abdn.ac.uk. And we will put your questions and comments to our speakers. Keep in mind, however, that they won't be able to answer any personal or medical questions. Today, I'm delighted to welcome quite a lineup of experts from both the University of Aberdeen and NHS Grampian, who have worked together in the last few months. First of all, we have Professor Corey Black, Director of the Center for Health Data Science, Dr. Nick Flack, Medical Director for NHS Grampian, Dr. Graham Osler, Health, Health Intelligence Analyst, and Dr. Dimitra Blana, lecturer in health data science. They will discuss how data modeling is used to support the NHS in the response to COVID-19 locally. So welcome everybody. Hi Barbara, good to see everyone. Hello. Hello. Hey Barbara. I will hand over now to Professor Corey Black, who will get us started with a few definitions. So first of all, Corey, what do we mean by locally? Hi, Barbara, and thanks for inviting us to join this podcast. So as a Centre for Health Data Science, local for us during the COVID pandemic has meant working really closely with our partners in NHS Grampian. Uh, And I'm going to invite uh, Nick, would you tell us a little bit about NHS Grampian as a health? Yeah, certainly, Corrie, and welcome, everyone. Uh, So NHS Grampian, we're one of the larger mainland health boards in Scotland, uh, up in the northeast of Scotland. The population coverage is just over a half a million, and it's a very diverse area spread from city region with about um, a quarter of a million people in Aberdeen through to rural Aberdeenshire and up to Murray. Now, we sit in the context of the north of Scotland, which has got six health boards in it, and we have very close relationships with the island boards of Shetland and Orkney, where we provide the majority of the care, and also some of the regional care across to Highland and for Tayside as well. So um, it's quite a big patch, um, certainly geographically, but relatively speaking, I guess in a national context, still quite a small population. Thanks, Nick, for uh, giving us that um, insight into Grampian. Um, And I guess it's worth saying that it's part of a picture across Scotland, isn't it? And as we've been planning into COVID, we've been um, looking both at that that UK information, the Scottish information and globally in terms of trying to understand um, how we might need to to react and respond as as a system. The focus today is thinking about how we've used modelling, and I guess we've heard a lot in the media about um, following the science and following the model um, that the UK government have been describing. But it might be helpful just to think about what does what does a model mean to us? So, so Nick, for, for you as somebody who's having to design a, a, a response from the health service, and um, I guess you... 
coming up and asking us for help uh, with using data to 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 plan that what does a model mean uh, i mean to you yeah thanks Corey. i i, I mean right at the beginning i think we're all recognized that a lot of our information was coming really from the news and from friends around the world and across the uk and i guess in its simplest terms for me a model was a very um a clear picture of a situation both now and for the future so fundamentally a communication tool and certainly right at the beginning there was a major deficit in not having that to hand that's great. So I'm going to turn for something a little bit more um, technical. Demetra, you're a you're a biomedical engineer. So um, what's your what's your shorthand definition for a model for you as a scientist? Thank you, Corey. So uh, for me, a model is a mathematical description of a system or process. So as you said, my background is in biomedical engineering, and there I regularly use mathematical models of the musculoskeletal systems. So models that describe how muscles enable us to move. So in epidemiology, a model would mathematically describe how an infectious disease spreads. Okay, that, that's great. So that hopefully sets a bit of a picture of what we're going to be talking about. Um, Nick, I remember when we started this back in, well, probably February, even before the first cases of known COVID in in um, Scotland had emerged, and we were watching the the situation in Italy. And I guess, um, well, at that time, it, it was a conversation about what what could we learn, what at that highest level could we learn in terms of how we might begin to to plan a system change that. As, was just reflecting back on that as as somebody who was having to look at that what what was starting to go through your mind what what sort of information did you think you were going to need at that point in time yeah I, um i completely agree cory so again early on it was a situation where we felt we had lots of information so there was a huge amount on the news we had lots of communications with individual clinicians but we really didn't have that clear picture for what would it mean for us and I think one of the critical aspects that we hadn't been able to communicate right at the beginning, and this is what we were really looking for, is understanding the exponential nature of a pandemic event. Just about everyone in healthcare is used to the idea that uh, demand has variation, but really in terms of a growth of demand, it tends to be very linear or um, in a surge uh, manner, but that notion of exponential growth. So understanding if things came to Aberdeen and we thought that they would, what would that actually that mean locally for us, and how do we convey that message to our clinicians that what you may be needing to plan for is something that you have not faced before? Yeah, I think at that time my memory is feeling really struck by the images that were emerging and the stories actually on on Twitter and other places from frontline A and E consultants and senior managers in some of the hospitals in in Italy and and that sense of how quickly it seemed to go from one or two cases into queues of ambulances at the front door and. Um, Yes, that, that difference between uh, what a doubling time looks like. So going from two cases to four, to, you know, and increasing. But that as you go up from what still feel like quite small numbers to suddenly turning the corner, as we hear them describing it now, into these really massive increases every day. And, and I suppose for the first time, really seeing what 
that might look like on the ground as you watched the news each day. Um, it it was it was pretty daunting, I think. In, in all honesty, it felt pretty daunting at that moment in time. I, I completely agree, Corey. I mean, certainly in those early few weeks, you know, we all had really pretty bad sleepless nights, sort of trying to really get a grip on uh, what it would actually mean for us. And and again, you know, quite a lot of us are used to what I guess you could call individual major incidents where something comes it's very bad and one has a very um, short-lived but um, immediate response to it but this was a situation where we were trying to imagine a future that wasn't in front of us yet that would probably span for a much longer period of time and really trying to visualize and get a grip on that was very very difficult. Um, and and certainly as we used to um, come several times a day and uh, sit around the sort of whiteboard and try to get a real picture of how we understood it. When I meant, went down to meet the clinical teams in, in the hospital, th- th- there was a real sense that um, we, we were needing to bring them closer to that understanding rather than one of this was a disaster happening in Italy um, rather than something that we would have to plan for and face. Yeah, so I think that it was really striking, that sense of um, as it almost came up across the country through, you know, through Italy and Europe and then into into London. And, and, and even though by that time we had cases in Grampian, it, it still felt um, very manageable and, and still something that perhaps was quite a long way off. Graham, I remember at that point in time, you and I spent a lot of time uh, reading uh, and trying to um, think about how we could interpret and, and use the information that was then sort of into March, beginning to emerge from um, from Imperial College and the Imperial paper, the Imperial model, as it was uh, talked about and talked about widely in the media as well. Um, I, I, would, do you want to say a little bit about um, what those first steps were like for you within health intelligence and Grampian and seeing those models and thinking about, well, how can we use that to to help support this planning conversation? Uh, yeah, thanks, Corey. Um, yeah, well, that was a, an extremely interesting period of time for us in health intelligence. I think as Nick says, you know, um, in terms of a health intelligence approach to sort of planning and so on, we talk about years um, and looking at averages over years and so on, and nothing of this nature had sort of come our way before to start to be thinking at that sort of scale. Um, and especially uh, lots of the data that that we manage and deal with is stuff that we're very used to um, and can measure and have done so for years. Coming to this situation, uh, a sort of epidemic situation was something that was completely new to us and it was it was invaluable having the link with the University of Aberdeen, with, with you, Corrie, who were pulling out those research papers that, that were published, uh, you know, rapidly um, and, and putting those in front of us really was, was key to how we could respond, I think, um, to... to your, your ready access to it and knowledge of where to find those things was key to saying, right, here's the thing that's going to help us get somewhere. So um, I think that Imperial paper came out um, uh, on about the 23rd of, of March or something, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was something that we then literally poured over as quickly as we could because what 
what we were faced with was was a, a massive lack of information on that local level really and it was we weren't going to get that really we weren't going to understand how many of our population were infected or anything like that that we could you know obviously that we could put into models um, and so having a basis to to begin with um, with that imperial paper having access to your team i remember initially as we started to pull pull some of the information out of that and say right this is how we could start to do something to understand something for Grampian, I, I went straight back to um, to Jess Butler, Dr. Jess Butler, and, and and said, "Am I doing this right? Have I interpreted this paper correctly?" And and having that backup, having someone with that experience of of the research papers that were so necessary to start to construct something was um, invaluable for us at that time. And of course, that partnership with you and Jess has continued with the CSO-funded project um, that's looking at the healthcare needs of people shielding from COVID-19 in Grampian. So I think that's that's a really striking difference in this situation, isn't it? That normally our normal planning model is to look at what we've known, look, our, look at our lived experience and, and look at that either from our clinical understanding and our clinical colleagues' experience or from... Uh, from the from the data, Graham, and I'll come back to you in a minute, just to ask you to say a little bit about what that means in terms of what sort of data would you be looking at routinely to plan for a winter or a, or a healthcare situation. Um, but it, it, in this situation, we we had no past, we had no experience of it before. Uh, and so it was absolutely into that, Nick, I think you described it as painting a picture. Um, you know, trying to take the... Um, the evidence of what was emerging in Imperial had taken um, this type of modelling that, that Demetra described about taking an infectious disease model and what we understood about how infectious diseases spread um, and trying to use that to project into the future with very little information about what was happening in your population or actually no information about what would happen on the ground in your population, but to make some estimates of how many people did we think would um, need hospital care? How many of them might need intensive um, hospital care and support? And to, to use that then as some um, really one or two concrete pieces of the puzzle that we could start to plan around and start to build in. Essentially, what are a set of assumptions, aren't they? They're a set of, well, we think this amount might happen. So, it, so if we assume that, and in the case, this case, 4% of people infected might need hospital, hospital care, then what would that mean? How many beds will we have to make available um, if the infection spreads at the, the kind of rates that we might be talking about? Graeme, could you say a little bit about... Um, the kind of data that you normally work with and, and in terms of planning, helping support planning for the health system? Uh, yeah, I can, Corey. So um, we use some of the things that we, we ultimately did use for, 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 for the planning of this, but um, perhaps with a different basis. So a, a lot of the things that we were concerned about here was to do with sort of bed occupancy, how many people would be coming into our hospital. And so for that, we we get our data from from what is called the patient management system which is which is pulling in 
data on who's coming into particular specialties, uh, working out how long they might be in for, um, and then taking that forward to, to perhaps estimate some beds that might be required. So that's the sort of thing that we might do. Um, usually fairly coarsely really, you know, we're talking about a year, you know, in a year's time or so on what we might do. Um, and not on a, uh, frequently on a day-to-day -day sort of basis of, of what might be happening uh, in, in that case. So and these data, Graham, are the kinds of data that um, accumulate as part of our normal administrative process around healthcare, aren't they? So as a patient comes into hospital and they're logged and clerked in at that front desk, that time stamps a set of activities and we gather that information up as part of our NHS processes routinely. So, so it was those kinds of data about the sort of service flow that we're, we're talking about here, is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's what we draw on so much of is what's recorded as patients come into the system. And I, I guess I should say principally within an acute setting is the data that we deal with. Um, I don't know whether we'll touch on it at any point, but obviously this sort of epidemic pandemic was lots was going on uh, beyond the sort of hospital walls that was important to lots of people as well um, uh, rather than just within the hospital so we had a set of data that that, that is all about people coming into our care um, so how we see them how long they're with us and not necessarily much information about how they got here um, uh, and the journey that it might have taken which was was quite important to, to the whole of Grampian's response Corey, I, I don't know whether I could come in there. I, I think Graham's hit on a couple of things that, that were really critical at the beginning. So having done some of that initial work of essentially taking some of the assumptions from the Imperial model and saying, well, what would it mean locally? And, and then I took that information down to uh, the senior clinical leaders in our main hospital, which has got about 800 beds or so. And I guess the language Graham talks about is known to all of them you know, conversion rates into ITU, length of stay, delayed discharges, bed complements, all of those sorts of things. That's their everyday language. All of the people around that table had read the Imperial paper, but that transition to turning that into real life to take them through, well, we've taken the assumptions out of the Imperial paper. We've taken an assumption about what, what might be a realistic worst case scenario and then I'm going to now tell you what that means in our hospital here. And when we showed the first sort of figures where, you know, it looked as though at the peak, if things hit that sort of realistic worst case scenario, we would uh, take our ITU, which normally has 15 or 16 beds to 80 beds. We would use five to 600 beds of our hospital just for people with COVID. And that we would have over 100 people arriving to the hospital every day. Now, now that that sort of power of that message, I mean, there was stunned silence when we put that through. All of those people had read the Imperial paper, but until you'd worked them through, these are the assumptions we take from it. And this is what it would be like uh, sitting in this hospital if those come true. It, it, it was colossal. It was it was a watershed moment for me and changed the engagement and the buy in to planning and thinking. So I've worked with data for the best part of 20 odd years now and um, for me that that experience of, of sitting down um, you know twice a day with yourself and that senior leadership team and with, with Graham and the and the raw data and 
grappling at evidence from other sources, the hard numbers that we were used to seeing and trying to translate that into messages that, um, that you needed to be able to um, communicate and, and take that picture of what it was we might have to plan for. Um, was a really powerful experience. It's possibly one of the most powerful, you know, um, impact experiences from a from an academic research. You know, in terms of that, the the time from a conversation to change was was so intense. Um, so it so it certainly was a real lesson in, for me in terms of how you might um, use data in a really valuable way um, for that real immediacy and the sorts of information that you needed in order to be able to communicate that um, was a, was interesting insights into how that whole process kind of works. It, it struck me the thing that then was that tipping point, I suppose, was we had those conversations. We had an emerging understanding of just how big this task might be if nothing else changed um, and of course that wasn't what happened then um, because that was not a tolerable situation and um, the the interventions these um, non-pharmaceutical public health interventions as they describe them which are the lockdown as we now all know it um, <clears throat> was brought in um, and that came in quite early for Grampian in terms of our number of cases um, that we were experiencing and seeing through the hospital doors. But it felt like that journey into actually beginning to see cases, beginning to stack up and plot that real data against the lines that were drawn um, in terms of the model, the, the, the simplified extraction of that imperial model into some spreadsheets to say, we think this is the change you're gonna see every day. Um, and then starting to track those occupancies, the bed occupancy that Graham described, and it tracking that line felt like that was that was quite an important step in terms of um, understanding that yeah, in, in fact, this trajectory does look as though it might be real for us. We might be experiencing some something that we have asked the system to plan for. Uh, and I'd be interested in Graham's thoughts because I know I, I, these were hard. These were really hard times for for everybody doing this, um, and and it was hard times to have had to make a decision, or been the, the data team telling you that you're going to need to make a decision about whether you can keep the normal services of the NHS running, or whether this is something that's going to have to be more radical. We didn't make those decisions on our own because that was a policy decision across Scotland, but it was. Um, it was a daunting sensation, I guess, in terms of being the people doing the maths behind that. Graeme, I don't know if you want to reflect on that kind of, you know, the, the spreadsheet, the lines, and then watching the data coming in, in terms of how that, was it influencing practice? I, I think it was daunting. Um, obviously, you know, that was the sole focus of our organisation, really, was around our response to COVID. And um, yes, we'd taken the imperial model um, and, and, and drawn some lines of our sort of worst case scenario that we could deal with or, or a slightly less than worst case scenario. We didn't, so that draws nice lines on a graph. We didn't actually know where our start point was on that graph. And we spent quite a bit of time gathering some data and saying, well, I, I think we might be in week five or we might be, in, but maybe we're in week seven, in which case we're on a different line. Um, 
And that was all really quite difficult. Understanding the data as it came in as well was quite difficult to get a shared understanding of that to, to the variability around that. So we drew some very nice lines um, and, and they all look you know, very neat. But when you have five more people coming in than the line says, to know whether that's a really big issue or not was, was a stressful thing for people to make decisions on and say, well, let's hold on till tomorrow and see whether it goes down slightly below the line tomorrow. Um, so it, it was daunting. Um, I, I think that's where, where the team working, the team understanding came in um, and, and the amount that we, we were all working together. So um, uh, Nick and his control team having those regular discussions with us so they knew where we were coming from uh, in terms of what we were trying to do. Um, I think probably made Nick's messages out to the service easier and gave me a sense of, yeah, Nick knew where we were coming from with what we were doing and what we were able to do. And I think that's really important. I didn't, never felt, you, you could feel that you were hung out to dry. You know, you've, you've said it's going to go like this and it's not or whatever. And there was never any of that sense. Um, probably not in many organisations because it was so so new to everyone. But but yeah, it, it it was daunting to not know where that was going, and not have a not be able to be able to do anything more about that. To say no no it's okay we'll we'll we'll, we'll go over that peak tomorrow uh, is it was was daunting yeah. And so for that for me is that that's the world of public health and the the uncertainty that we're normally used to dealing with in in long term interventions. You know, will this intervention have an impact on obesity in in ten fifteen years time? Um, and so I suppose to see it coming into that um, you know day to day, as you say, you we were watching day to day and and having to. Um, decide whether the increase and I and I, I remember the weekend when the numbers started to increase rapidly and, and that kind of watching it all weekend, not really being able to disconnect from seeing the, the real time data come in. So by that time we're <clears throat> tracking every day anyone who's coming into the hospital and has a, a COVID test, because back then we were only testing people who were being admitted to hospital. Um, Anyone who's coming to a COVID test, we're tracking them, seeing them coming into the ward, seeing where they are, whether they're in the, the COVID dedicated wards or whether they're um, in intensive care and seeing those numbers build up. And I, I remember the weekend of not being able to really leave the screen because we we knew it was busy in A&E on the Friday and we, we could see those COVID test results coming in and wondering if this was this was going to be the start of it. It's really interesting. Yeah, Corey, really interesting because I remember that weekend well and and I also remember the calm before the storm, if you like. So so I think an additional thing I'd add to getting that model into a local context, but also bringing it to people with sufficient trust around it. Because what we asked people to do in that two or three weeks before that weekend when it started heating up was to plan to reconfigure and reorganize the best part of five or six thousand staff in an 800 bedded hospital to potentially do a completely different job and the planning around that we got some fantastic help from the military liaison um, uh, officers who came and joined us and joined our team but that work which was only possible because they 
trusted in what we were presenting them and they trusted in the people presenting it. So people like yourself and Corey and Graham and other members of the team had built that, um, if you like, currency of reputation and trust in our local health community such that they could take that and plan for something that on paper looked extraordinary. So when that heat came, and, and it's always very interesting when people say to me, well, it didn't really come to so much, did it? And now that said to me quite a bit. And I, I guess there's two reflections I have on that. The first is, well, it didn't come to much, but we had 100 people in a hospital with a single disease and an ITU twice the size of normal with half a dozen people on ECBO. So did it come to much? Well, we'd never seen anything of that in our careers. But I think the other reflection is that it didn't feel like that because we'd built the trust to generate the planning. So as those numbers changed and we had to change wards and move staff around and all of those sorts of things, we followed the script, the script that had been written by the information intelligence that you guys had built um, to generate that trust in our clinical staff to make those moves. So I think that it's a really nice bit to, to move into, I guess, where the, the research starts to really come into this moving forward, because what we learned was <clears throat> relationships really matter. And I think that's come out really strongly listening to the conversation and the reflections of that first wave. Um, and that then taking that real world data and putting it inside a model with somebody who can understand the inner workings of that model. Um, would help us move into this next phase of doing this for the long term now, doing this again as we, we see the second wave of, of COVID coming, but really with quite a different scenario. So what we understood for the first wave was about this hospitalised infections, and that was the only insight that we had in terms of the real world was the testing in hospitals. We're testing now, but we're testing a far wider range of the community, and that changes the information that we have and changes our ability to interpret that. So, Dimitri, I'm going to come to you now because you led us into the, that next step of putting together a research proposal about how we might combine and build on the learning and, and, and take some of those methodologies forward. Could you tell us a little bit about that work? Yes, thank you, Corey. Um, so one thing I want to say is that the last few months for me have been very fascinating. Um, this is obviously not my area of research as a biomedical engineer, but because I'm a member of the Center for Health Data Science, I was exposed daily to all these asks from the NHS. I knew about the modeling that was going on, and so I was quite keen to contribute. So one thing that was obvious was that um, it was great to use the outputs of the imperial model and adjust them for our local situation, but what would be really good if we could develop a model locally with data you know, collected here from the start. And so by talking to people in the Center for Health Data Science, I realized that mathematically, from a mathematical point of view, um, when you look at these epidemiological models, they're very similar to the models that I'm used to dealing with in biomedical engineering. And so quite a few of the engineering approaches that I use could be used in the epidemiological models to fit the models to the local data. So. Um, this is what we did. So we applied for a grant from the NHS Grampian Endowments Fund, um, and they were very successful. So we're very grateful for their support. And the aim of this grant is to use engineering methods to develop a model that's specific to the Grampian region, so that with a local model, we can then make 
kind of local predictions and assist the local response to the epidemic. So I'm just going to mention quickly what this engineering approach is. It's just a different way of estimating the parameters of the model. So one of the advantages is it can estimate parameters that themselves change over time. So it's not, um, you know, it's not different. It's not, it's, it's complementary to other statistical approaches. So for example, Public Health Scotland are also developing models using statistical approaches. So we're working together on this and we're um, uh, you know, exchanging ideas. So the important thing is that the model is being developed specifically for Grampian. So we're focusing on how the infection is really spreading here. Like who is more affected by it? What are the characteristics of people here who end up in hospital? And if they go into hospital, what exactly is their pathway through the hospital? So we're fitting the model to this sort of data that we have collected from the epidemic so far. And so as cases in the community, community are rising, then we can make predictions about what we expect to see in our hospitals here in Grampian. Um, so it's really important that we look after data carefully and, and there's a process around that. Um, and I guess it starts right back at your research proposal, doesn't it? So we, we take that and we get a set of permissions. We have it scrutinised by... Um, the Caldecott Guardian, who's the person who, who has to make a decision about whether the benefits from looking at the data outweigh the potential risk to individual privacy. And that we have a plan around how we're going to look after those data and who's going to access it and who's going to, um, where we're going to store any information. And so for these studies, when we're working, we work um, as if we were one, as if you and I are part of the NHS Grampian team. Um, and we minimise the amount of data that we share. We remove identifiers wherever that's possible to do so that it's not about the names of people. Um, and that we then hold that data in a secure way that is not accessible to everybody. And I guess that's the, the kind of core parts of answering only the question we need to answer with the minimum amount of data that we need in order to answer it. And absolutely with that local angle about using that local data to have benefits for our the care of patients in that local setting. Yeah. Corey, I, I, I'll come in a little bit on that because I, I completely agree that the fundamental principle is is what's your purpose and and do you have public trust? Um, and one of the really interesting things early on is that I talked a lot about communicating with professionals very shortly after we'd spent time with the professionals, we went public with our information. And we were probably one of the first groups in Scotland to take that approach of, of actually showing what our prediction model data was and what our plan was to the public. And we, and we made a very amateurish short video um, and put that together. It, it still's got the Grampian record for the number of views um, in terms of the population. You know, the feedback was tremendous. Uh, and, and I think that provides a foundation that what your local population wants is, is, is they want to trust in you. They want to see that you're understanding the local situation and they want to see you planning for the future. And all of those things generate the platform to be able to run projects where people effectively are saying that I'm comfortable with the use of my data in this way. And it's maybe worth saying again, Nick, as well, that it, it builds on years of work, doesn't it now, where the university um, and NHS Grampian have worked in partnership around, around building systems and structures to help with that data. So we have a thing called the Grampian Data Safe Haven, 
which is a, a secure facility with a, an experienced team who help us mobilise data for approved research questions and, and keep it in a secure way with a tight record and control over who has access to the data. And we've used those principles to help us move at pace now where this time round, Demetra and I, we're we're in on the coal face with you in a sense that this is this is a pandemic situation and we needed to work at pace. So we're working in a slightly different way from that, but we're working to those same principles and that same experience and how to do this well and securely with the safe haven. Yeah, I would agree, Corey. And and, and even more than that, I guess we, we have a local population that wants us to pursue that work if we think about the fantastic work the university's done with the children of the 50s and uh you know the aberdeen maternity database you know real heritage of using data to to plan for populations and understand need um you know so so uh, it, it's really interesting you, you describe how the gap between research and um active um operational business has got closer and closer. And it's not only close in terms of how we work together, it's now become paper thin in terms of the time between the research modeling and the application into practice. And that's something new for all of us. You know, we're very used to a cycle where academic research produces a publication that people read next year and potentially change practice. This is stuff where, you know, on the Monday, you're doing something and we're stitching it together on the Thursday to talk to people about it. Yeah, it, it's a real transformation in terms of pace at many levels around both academia and I guess health service redesign as well. Um, I wonder if we could maybe just finish off, um, Barbara, just before we stop in reflecting a little bit about, so here we are, it, it's um, coming up for the October school holidays now and, and we're moving into winter and winter's always a, a challenging time for the health system. Um, because of additional pressures, both in primary and, and secondary care. Um, and and we're, we're watching a rise in, in COVID positive cases at the moment in Grampian, largely in our community setting um, and in younger people associated, obviously, with the, the well-publicised uh, university student outbreaks across, across the UK. But we know that this disease follows a really standard pattern time and time again that as it moves out of that younger group who largely are, are fairly resilient to it as an illness we see it moving into an older generation into people with other um, underlying health problems and that the the risks for those people having a more uh, complicated time with covid begins to increase potentially and so i guess for all of us, we're beginning to, to, to brace and out again and begin to plan again. And so I suppose hearing a little bit about Demetra's model, um, knowing what we do from the first round, um, I suppose I'm wondering how how you see some of these tools being able to help you plan in, in what actually is a much more complicated ask again of you this time, which is to, to keep a health system going um, and functioning a, a, for as long as you can, while also having to be really agile and reacting to any change in that pattern that we're seeing from the community who are experiencing COVID into people now requiring more and more hospital support. Uh, I, again, I would completely agree. I think the appetite 
and the need for this is is greater than ever before. I mean, as you described, Corey, is that it's definitely more complicated because as time has gone on, um, the the uh, critical functions of the health service that can't be paused any longer need to be provided. And at the same time, as we go into winter, where there are obviously a number of drivers that drive unscheduled care and changes in in illness throughout that period of time, and then the uncertainties of COVID. So to stitch all of those together um, is very complicated. It's absolutely critical. And, and the appetite is enormous. So, um, you know, there, there is a whole legion of our teams saying, where's the model? Where's the model for winter? We need the model for winter so we can have a plan because people want a plan. Um, and that's all of us um, uh, that are involved in that. And, uh, you know, it, it will be complex, but I think we shouldn't be anxious. Uh, models for me are not about being right about the future. Models are powerful tools to communicate and plan and to support us and hold our hand as we go through these really difficult times. We shouldn't be anxious about whether a model was right or wrong. It's always right if it helps us get through. That seems like a really good place to to hand back to you, Barbara. Yes, absolutely. On that note, I really would like to thank you, all four of you, Corey, Nick, Graham and Dimitra, for such a fascinating insight into um, how modelling works, its importance in uh, helping us to uh, meet the current challenges. But also, I think this has been a really valuable reminder of um, how important it is to bring together different perspectives and different expertise going from the clinicians to the biomedical engineer um, to face um, yeah, the current challenges again. So thank you very much for um, this really fascinating conversation. And to our listeners, I would like to remind you that if you have any questions or comments at all, please email us at peru at abdn.ac.uk. That's P-E-R-U at A-B-D-N dot A-C dot U-K. And keep your ears open for our next episode of Cafe Connect. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.